Welcome to Twirl, the week in health law, the Song of Ice and Fire podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on August 25th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis, joined, of course, by my co-host, who hopefully has given his last ever press conference from Trump Tower and is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Just remember, as you enjoy the pod, we encourage ratings on uh, Apple Podcasts, as it's now called. It used to be called iTunes. And if you go to twill.com, you can even buy a t-shirt or become a patron. So this week on Twill, we greet Dr. Julia Powells, educated at ANC in her native Australia and subsequently Oxford and Cambridge. Dr. Powells practiced in IT and IP, worked at the WIP. PO and as a contributing editor and policy fellow at the Guardian newspaper. Uh, currently, she's on this side of the Atlantic, visiting at both Cornell Tech and NYU Law School's Information Law Institute. Super to have you on the pod, Julia. Great to be here. Nice to join you both. The conversation today is going to be a pretty deep dive into the deep mind, uh, royal free data sharing issues that uh, were raised in the UK. But I think it gives us a real opportunity to pull out not only the legal data principles involved, but the much broader policy issues, which I think have far broader application to this country as well as Europe. As I understand it, Julia, the the uh, the game started with Hal Hodson's piece in The New Scientist. So if that's right, could you kind of start us there and tell us who the players are, what are the technologies, and just how this all sort of came out? I've been doing some work at, with Hal, as it happens, um, on DeepMind. It's a Google subsidiary set up in 2011 in the UK and then acquired by Google in 2014. And there's been a lot of attention around their first foray into working with the British uh, National Health Service, which was announced in February of last year. It's a great fanfare at the Royal Society. And Hal, who was at the time a reporter at uh, New Scientist, he's now a tech correspondent for The Economist, he has been following for a number of years the sort of AI machine learning space. And DeepMind is one of the major players in that area. And he has cottoned on to the main question, and I think many academics are starting to look at in this area too, which is you don't really have any machine learning if you don't have data. So the key question is who holds the data under what terms? As other journalists were putting out stories last February about how great it would be to have DeepMind transform the NHS, which is plagued by many issues, he uh, did a freedom of information request on the data agreement underlying the work that they were proposing to do. And it was it was stated in very, fairly vague terms what they were going to be doing in February. It was to work on acute kidney injury, one of the a, a major uh, condition affecting people in um, Britain and across the world. But the, the details were vague. So he, he did an FOI request. A couple of months later, it came back and it revealed that uh, to work on this project, DeepMind had been gifted 1.6 million patient records from uh, the main hospital in North London, the Royal Free Hospital Trust. And the terms of it were <laughs> rather generous to DeepMind, in fact, to DeepMind's parent company, Google, which had actually signed the agreement. So he wrote a story about that and, and that's when the story sort of hit the public consciousness as being a story about data, a story about control and more broadly what's happening in um, as private tech companies are moving into public services, particularly health services in the UK. The b- 
big surprise when you saw the agreement was what? It was the historical data, the sort of disconnect between what seemed like a relatively small piece of technology, the streams app, and why you would need this amount of data for that app. Were those the kind of signals that, that went off? That initial issue of why are millions of people's identifiable records? I don't know. I know when I first spoke about this with Frank, that just the notion that these were non-anonymized, you know, right. very rich patient records of every single patient in the hospital going to a company that was developing some technology. So I didn't say what, what they were proposing to develop. It was in acute kidney injury. And... Um, I mean, it's it's a it's a very curious sort of first deal, and this is one of the reasons why we thought it required a, some rigorous independent analysis, because for for an AI company, the really bizarre thing is that this first product that it's working on the NHS with is not an AI product. It is a app, pretty conventional smartphone app, to surface um, historical data and to put data that is relevant to whether someone is being monitored for and may be affected by a acute kidney injury to, to sort of gather that data and then put it through an NHS algorithm. So there's no independent technology or tr triage or anything like that that DeepMind is offering. It's purely an app wrapper around an NHS algorithm and historic data owned by the um, Royal Free or accumulated by the Royal Free. But for, to do this, and the thing that just really caught my attention at the beginning was that they had, in order to develop a service for a, a proportion of the patients, and admittedly, you know, acute kidney injury does affect many patients up to 40,000 a year. They had acquired identifiable data going back five years, every blood and urine test um, conducted in the role free. And it had just been given to Google and was sitting on Google servers to develop an app that hadn't yet been deployed and in fact took 15 months before it was deployed. So Julia, when we think about the treatment of issues like this in Britain, it seems like there's a very important role for Dame Caldicott. And, and could you explain her role institutionally and, and with respect to the norms and laws here? As a non-Brit, I found this an interesting aspect of sort of privacy, data protection. Our most sensitive personal data in the medical domain is dealt with in this curious boot out from the Data Protection Act, where if what you're dealing with is medical care, medical research and so on, you move from the strict rules of Data Protection Act into pseudo-legislative basis of the Caldecott guidelines, as they're called, um, and a suite of other information governance norms. And Dame Fiona, Fiona Caldicott is the woman, that the granddame that sits at the centre of this Caldicott system. And she has this key role in actually, it's a derivation from fiduciary relations, doctor-patient relations, in that when medical data is used in, a con in the context of direct care to treat an identified individual for an identified condition, there's certain allowances for how you can use data in that circumstance. And when there is not direct care, indirect care, you move into a domain where you need other regulatory approval. And Caldicott in the British system performs this key role in defining whether or not a certain arrangement is direct care or indirect care. Just to interrupt here to put this in, in a US perspective, for HIPAA, dear, dear US listeners, that direct clinical care would be allowable under the HIPAA rules and maybe even some outcomes research. But when it goes beyond that, that is when HIPAA kicks in with a prohibition. And so uh, 
that's roughly the same sort of idea. Yeah, that's right. And so it's it's been one of the key issues, this sort of two big legal issues that have come about since the first investigations last May. And that's, is the activity that DeepMind is assisting the Royal Free Hospital with? Is it direct care? And the second issue is, are there data protection issues more broadly with with how they've conducted their behaviour? And the key legal question there is the distinction between a data controller and a data processor, because the implications of data protection law for a data controller in the UK and European system are much more significant than a data processor. So any third-party tech company is often wanting to classify themselves as a processor to avoid legal responsibilities. Ah, and this question of classifying oneself as a processor is really interesting in terms of, and, and it also reminds me of just Google's overall subsidiary strategy, you know, in terms of like, well, wait, now there's Alphabet, and then that's something of holding company for both Google, the search ad business, and for something like DeepMind, etc. And do you think that this is designed for certain forms of regulatory arbitrage? I mean, we're very familiar with Nick's work on regulatory arbitrage in the healthcare space. Is that part of the theme here? or is that not so important in this particular case? Well, I think why this case is so interesting is that DeepMind is being able to access the heart of probably one of the best indexed personal data repositories in the world, the British NHS. And that's a space that Google has been trying to get at for a decade. So my interest in sort of coming into this, I I knew Hal and we started working together, is that there were a lot of attempts to obfuscate in some way what role Google is playing in all of this. And as I said, Google signed this first deal with the Royal Free. And I think that the sort of effort to, there's sort of two layers in which they were trying to engage in this regulatory arbitrage. One is, this is a deal about DeepMind. It's got nothing to do with Google. And when you're a wholly owned subsidiary, I just don't think that argument washes. And the other one was around this, we're just a mere data processor. We've got, we're not adding anything here. And the curious thing is at the same time as they're saying, we're not adding anything here, they're also claiming we are this fantastic company that's going to transform the NHS. That's so interesting. And and could we do two more steps here, which is the first, I'd love for you to sort of lay out what the data data commissioner said after this, you know, was brought to their attention. And secondly, I want to get into the equities and and just discuss a little bit of Google's side of the story or DeepMind's side of the story. So what was sort of the formal finding of the information commissioner here? Just a a couple of timeline steps before it so we, we can place the information commissioner. So May 2016, there's a big controversy about this. And the Information Commissioner, which um, oversees application of the Data Protection Act, says we're launching an investigation. That investigation concluded this July, um, and it looked into whether there had been any data protection breaches in the activities of the of DeepMind and the Royal Free. There was an intermediate step, which is that the National Data Guardian, the Dame Fiona Caldicott, gave an opinion to the Information Commissioner on whether or not there was direct care. And there was various other things, which we may talk about, which changed in the meantime, such as DeepMind and the Royal Free tore up the agreement and rewrote a new one halfway through its terms. So they suspended it early. Um, they made other deals. There was lots of public debate. And um, I think part of it was Hal and I published this article in March, which was um, which Google really um, and DeepMind really hit back at. And so various pieces played out. And then there was this ruling in July, which was supposed to resolve it all, given it had been going on for over a year. And on a number of key questions, the ICO ruling seemed to fight shy um, in actually addressing the core issues. So I said that one of the key issues was what was the arrangement between DeepMind and Royal Free purely a data controller, data processor arrangement? And I think for various reasons that that 
that just doesn't hold. So a data processor acts on strict instructions of a data controller and exercises no independent judgment about the nature and means of processing. And I find it hard to imagine how or why um, the Royal Free would have engaged a company such as DeepMind to build something without applying any of its actual data um, management expertise uh, beyond what the Royal Free could have already done. But that's how they that's what they how they're self-identified in a contract. Of course, there's there's definitions of what a data processor and a controller are, and it's not just saying that you are one. But what the ICO said was we um, for the purpose of, of their ruling, they basically took it as an accepted fact that DeepMind was the processor and Royal Free was the controller. So all of the um, findings that they made in their ruling were applicable to the Royal Free as data controller, as the responsible party. And what they found is that the Data Protection Act had been breached in four different respects by this deal being made. Now, the very interesting thing about it is that the big issue, as I outlined it, that 1.6 million people's patient records have been sitting on Google's servers for um, a year and a half wasn't really addressed. They actually addressed a very narrow issue which is that the claimed basis from the parties for holding that data is that they were developing a clinical care app that applies to every single patient. And in the meantime, one of the pivots the company has done, probably Frank, in, you know, as a, as a preemptive anti-regulation move, is to make this app a general clinical alert app to move it from acute kidney injury to a range of diseases that would require monitoring and therefore historical patient records. So that's sort of shifted in, in the technology. Um, so what the ICO focused on was, is this access to data legitimate for the purpose that um, Royal Free and DeepMind say it, they've had it for, which is to test a clinical alert app? And they found that it was not within the expectations of patients or proportionate to have transferred 1.6 million records to do small batch testing on a small sample set. What they didn't resolve is, what's the legal basis for this having been sitting there all this time. And the interesting thing is that the hospital was given three months to essentially justify um, and uh, justify itself as to why it's done that. And that is that the clock is ticking on that. So we should have some response from them in September. I have become steadily disenchanted um, about getting real answers or any real response in this. To me, it's a really clear cut case that you need a legal basis. And the fact that there was not actually any app in development, they proposed to develop an app a year and a half later for a proportion of patients. There's no basis to transfer every single patient's data. Um, but I think that that's become such a controversial political move that they haven't, yeah, they haven't actually addressed it. So in thinking about this, Julia, just sort of drawing back, and I really appreciate your expertise on the facts here, the legal bases of the ICO's intervention, the very weak remedy, uh, negligible, <laughs> sort of being either uh, imposed or proposed uh, here. I want to just take a few steps back and say first why does it why wouldn't Google sort of agree to get the relevant permission is it because it is seen as too costly and if it is indeed too costly does that tell us something about say the problematic nature of consent requirements in an era of big data so I think to some extent the consent argument here is a little bit of a red herring because it's a very easy argument to say we can't do public health research if we require consent from the population. If there was a, if you were being treated for a condition where you needed to use a third party app to provide historic data, there's no issue whatsoever in that being legitimate under the Data Protection Act and the Caldecott guidelines. The issue here was that there was a whole bunch of data for people who weren't being treated for anything by DeepMind. How I read the situation is that 
that they didn't really think about anything being a problem at the beginning. First, nobody was necessarily going to look at the agreement or think about what data they had until how did the FOI request. Everybody loves Google and DeepMind, so and the NHS is cash-strapped, so when a company came along and said, we'll develop a service for free, just give us this data, the Royal Free was very keen on it. And then when the controversy started, rather bizarrely, instead of saying, here's what the basis was, or we didn't have the appropriate approvals, now we're going to do it this way, DeepMind really dug its heels in and said, no, this all fits normal medical practice. If you had to give DeepMind's best three arguments for what they did, what would those be and how would you uh, counteract them? Uh, so the first argument that they've led with is we are doing great work to improve patients' lives. That's what they put up front. And so any critic really doesn't share our interest in um, saving lives. I think that one is, it's unfortunately got a lot of traction um, because, of course, we're all interested in saving lives and it doesn't exempt you from having to comply with the same rules as everybody else. That's one of their main arguments. Um, another is what we're doing here is direct care. And so anything that we do is justified. And I think the response to that is, well, there's a definition of direct care. It doesn't mean that some proportion of your patients are receiving care. It means that you have an identified relationship with somebody who's receiving care. Um, I think the real basis, if they were honest about it, was, well, in a typically googly way, we wanted to do great things with a bunch of data. And then they got caught out when Hal did his reporting. And it was found that, in fact, they had access to data for which they had no basis. But instead of trying to find a basis or explaining how we got to this situation, for example, well, we were working with the cash-strapped NHS and they were so enthusiastic about us working together, so we just went full steam ahead. Instead, they've tried to, they're trying to remake the foundations of medical information governance, frankly, by saying, if you develop an app for anyone, you get to have everybody's data. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And I mean, the other thing that really stuck out to me when looking at the terms of this deal is that you know, there's enormous benefit for Google as a data analyst to get their hands on this data. And by the way, I'd love to learn the, fir the full details about what are the rules governing data transfers among, say, DeepMind and other alphabet entities. But let's, even if we presume that DeepMind is just, you know, its own, a tub on its own bottom, there's a lot of benefits there. And then the question becomes, well, what exactly are the benefits to the NHS? And it struck me that in your article, you were sort of suggesting that while it was being billed as potentially revolutionary, in fact, we're talking about stuff that was probably not that revolutionary. It reminds me a bit of the Paul Ohm's article about the failures of Google flu trends or the limitations of it. And so is your sense that the public dialogue here is skewed by AI hype, where we're assuming that there are these sort of godlike companies that can swoop in and do fantastic things with the data that are going to revolutionize healthcare, when in fact what's really going on is a pretty uh, grubby data grab that where it's not really worth rethinking or remaking the foundations of health governance to enable what appear to be very incremental improvements, if any. Yeah, terrific question. I think this is right at the nub of it. So first, just to your point about, I would also love to know the how the actual arrangements between Alphabet and DeepMind and Verily, another company that's trying to get into the British um, health data space. What is very interesting is that from the beginning and all of the, in their very rapid media responses, DeepMind and Google have said, look, we promise we will never connect your data that goes to DeepMind with your Google profile. And yet somehow they haven't found it in themselves to, in the hundreds of pages of legal agreements that they've negotiated since the controversy first um, was raised, they haven't managed to state that in any legally binding document. So while I have no reason to think that they are actually connecting it with Google data, it's um, we don't have any guarantees against that. So that's just on that point. 
I think you're totally spot on about the AI hype. So having spoken to a number of other companies that are working in the um, you know AI and healthcare space, they are staggered that this deal happened, that there was such spectacularly deep and broad access for something that is really comparatively quite trivial. Now, I do think that Streams, this app they're developing, which at the moment is an alert app, will get more and more smarts in it and they'll surely go through proper approvals to do so. But the fact of them being an AI company, I think you can't avoid in the fact that they got this access. I just don't think if it was British American Tobacco or if it was Pfizer or if it was Cisco, you would have been able to get a deal like this through. Just it seems totally improbable. So in the the paper I wrote with Hal has two parts. One is assessing whether um, what they've done has is is lawful and how it was communicated to the public and the fact that patients were never engaged. And the other part is okay, well let's actually treat it for what we think it is, which is an AI company moving into the healthcare space. And what are the broader issues um, that arise? And some of them are well, the first mover who comes in and offers an app, if they get all the data from which they can then build all sorts of other tools, that's a spectacular giveaway. Um, and one that we don't necessarily think is the most innovative approach in the interests of the healthcare system too. I mean, if you give away the data to a first mover, you really reduce competition. And maybe we don't even want this to be a competitive commercial space in itself. Going forward, I mean, what do you think would have been a better remedy for the ICO to have imposed uh, here? Does it seem as though this is so suspect that, you know, they really need to start over from scratch? Might there be other tools? I mean, I was also pretty surprised by the completely identifiable records here. So maybe in, in the future, perhaps would anonymization be a first step toward what a more, much more legitimate mode of partnership between national health services and uh, big data companies? So I think given that this case seems to me very clear cut, it's unfortunate that the clear findings that the, deep, uh, that, um, the ICO made about the number of breaches weren't just followed up with a very clear remedy. So the obvious remedy to me is not a fine, um, particularly given that they were loading it on the hospital trust, um, but that they should have had to remove the data. Um, if there's no legal basis, currently there's still no legal basis. They haven't justified a legal basis in 18 months. Uh, it seems to me that a clear solution is to just remove the data. Um, and when they have a product, which they've been testing on small samples and is now starting to deploy, that you have access as and when you need it to offer that product to patients. Um, if the Royal Freeze facilities don't enable streaming of sensitive personal data in a circumstance where you where it's required for care provided by a third party, I think they should. They should have those systems that can interface and um, they should recognise that the control, keeping the control within the trust um, is what is required by their duty to patients and is also an approach that guarantees that the, the, the um, clinicians within the trust can continue to develop to have authority and control over the outcomes for patients as services that are data-driven start to be added on to their suite of, of treatment plans. Do you think there's a sort of an unjust enrichment argument with regard to some of these behaviours? I mean, I I want to frame that with a little pushback against both of you. I think that the, the power of these data companies is based on how they keep feeding more and more data, that every piece of every data data they add, their ability to deal with data improves. So even if there isn't an immediate product, Frank, even if it looks like hubris rather than something tangible, the actual thing that's going on, the product out there, is itself the data and how the data grows, that it's organic. And 
I, I think that is where, Julia, your first mover argument is so important. And also the privatization of public data argument that, and these are both arguments I think are, are, are valid uh, or very important on this side of the Atlantic as well, that that's where we should be, should really be concentrating our attention. Yeah, great point. So I think that so it was one thing to make very clear is that to look at complex diseases and the sort of history of epidemiology and so on, you definitely require large data sets. And there's connections that are revealed, including by healthy patients and so on. So there is a, there's a whole spectrum of research that needs to be done and is done on large data sets, population-wide data sets. And there are um, regulatory mechanisms for dealing with that. Particularly in the UK, there's a whole research pro um, process. You sometimes use anonymized data. You can use identified data if you go through certain steps. DeepMind didn't go through these steps. They actually started an application in relation to streams and AKI and they suspended it. So they didn't go through a process that would have enabled them to do that. And they say they're not doing that with this data. So while in, and I think it's, it's really useful to sort of assess what that would look like, but I think it's perfectly possible in the UK system and they just didn't do it here. So they've, they've classified themselves under a different strand where, which is care and so on. Um, so that's why the, the particular issues that have come about um, are the ones that, that we've looked at. But I think research is a, is a separate issue. I've, unjust enrichment's a really interesting um, uh, area that I think would is actually got a lot of lot of potential. I haven't looked at it too much myself. There's sort of a number of issues, particularly in competition. That issue you raise about self-reinforcing effect of having a data, a, an already powerful data holder acquiring more data and what it can connect is a is a huge issue, and that's why it's so relevant. And, you can't just extract the fact that DeepMind and Google are related companies. I think it's absolutely pivotal and it's why there's so much public interest in this case, why it's really important that we ask the questions about what are the arrangements and are they watertight and can we scrutinize them and so on. In in several of the pieces that you've you've written about this, you you decry sort of the, the absence of a conversation about these issues. And as we sort of end our conversation, I think you have to put it in the frame of the default that you're working with. So I don't think a conversation would have a great ending in the US because of the incredibly low level of privacy protections that would be applicable to data held by DeepMind. So Alphabet would have very little risk and so not much uh, motivation to engage in a uh, really good conversation. But in the UK, although I'm worried about what I thought was a very weak letter uh, from the uh, commissioner, um, the defaults go the other way. So you would hope, and maybe you still hope, that there would be sort of more constructive uh, movement towards the middle and finding a, a, a good way forward here. Yeah, so it's a, often a bit of a crutch when people will say, oh, we need more of a conversation. I think we need more multiple conversations with multiple audiences. So the primary one, which I just think is inexcusable in the DeepMind case, is that at no stage, despite having every single patient's data transferred to DeepMind, was any patient informed about this. And there have been multiple other arrangements in the UK with third-party providers where there's been a leaflet drop or there's notices around the hospital or whatever. And you have to ask, why didn't they tell patients about this? So that's one, I think, as I say, that it's inexcusable. There's conversations that are that I think are at the level of a policy discussion about whether the promise, and it really is just at the moment the promise, of AI is such that we should just get rid of all of the rules that we've ever had around personal health data. And having worked in sort of some of the moves in bioinformatics and 
biobanking and genetic epidemiology and these other areas. I'm not convinced personally that the main players in AI are so much better than any of those medically trained, numerate, very quantitative people who have been in prime advances in, in uh, health research that we should just abandon rules around who has access to data and on what terms. So, but that's a conversation I think would be well informed by people who have clinical expertise and also are, are very numerate. It's very interesting the, the point you make about whether the differences, the transatlantic differences around privacy really sort of trickle down to the level of you know lay people involved in these conversations. Having been in them both, I'm not really sure. It's actually one of the things that we were a bit disenchanted by was that there were very few patients even after the quite a lot of media controversy who made any um, inquiries of the Royal Free themselves. And yet every single person I've spoken to who is at that trust has been very concerned once they sort of heard that their very sensitive sexual health tests and so on are sitting on Google servers. So uh, there's that's, I think, a general public education problem. And then there's the broader conversation about whether we are, are speaking about the value of these public, I think what should be in many ways treated as public assets and resources and the relatively minimal hurdles to getting access to them. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Dr. Pals for joining us. You can find her on Twitter where you should follow her. She is at Julia Powells. Great having you on the show, Julia. Thanks so much. Thanks. Just great to talk to you both. We post our show notes at tool.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. And Frank is... At Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. And don't share your medical data. <laughs> Ha, 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 ha.